I'm very thankful for the opportunity to bring God's Word to God's people here in Maynard, Tennessee. Although I'm from Tennessee, I'd heard of, never heard of Maynardville, Tennessee. And so I was uh, glad to learn a new part of where uh, my state goes. <laughs> because uh, when I lived in California for a few years, the people would tease me about my Tennessee accent because I was born and raised in Chattanooga. But I explained to them that I speak the King's English because Tennessee is where Elvis is from. (laughs) You know, the one thing you need when you come to a Bible conference, you're going to be the speaker, is to bring your Bible. That's the one thing I left home. So I'll see you around. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. No, actually... It's good to have your own Bible because you know, you use it so much, you know on the page where certain verses are and you can find them quickly. Plus, in my Bible, I have penciled in corrections. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, uh, be aware that you do have these outlines that should help you see the structure of the message. Plus, as you follow it, you'll see when we're about over and you know when you're ready to go home. So it's got two benefits for you there. Well, let's get started. Let's open with prayer. Gracious, loving, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us to save us from our sins which we have committed against you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your will for us that is revealed for us in the Word of God and that understanding that will would encourage us to pursue it, that we might be good servants of Christ. We thank you for this time together tonight and pray that you would bless us for having been here today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I will be following pretty closely the outline here, and every now and then you'll see the structure even in my message as I speak. But we're going to introduce this first, and we need to recognize that we're here to study what is called biblical eschatology. That is, what the Bible says about the future. The word eschatology is based on two Greek words that are found in the New Testament itself. Eschatos, which means last or end, and logos, which means a word or a study of something. So we're studying eschatology, which is dealing with the last things of history. And they are things that are in our future. And as we do so, we're going to be looking at what the Bible expectations are for our future. As we head out into the future, we're going to see what God has in store for us as we consider this together. And we're going to be studying one fundamental uh, issue here, and that is the issue of hope. The hope that we can have regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will study that fundamental issue and the Bible principles that undergird the idea of hope in Scripture. And I want us to consider, as we look at the flow of history, I want us to consider how history will unfold toward the end. That's basically what we're up to in this series together. How history will unfold until the end. Are we to expect despair and decline under the kingdom of Satan as he wages war against Christ? Or are we to expect progress toward worldwide victory under the kingdom leadership of Jesus Christ the Lord? That's basically the questions we're dealing with. Does Christ win in the end or does Satan win in the end? In history, I'm not talking about any in eternity. We all know Christ wins for eternity. But what about in history where our feet are now planted? What about that? That's the questions we're dealing with. And therefore, we're going to focus on the influence of the kingdom of God before Christ returns. In other words, in contemporary history, Christ hasn't returned yet. Before he returns, that's what we're interested in. That is, we're looking at the kingdom of God and its expectations before the end of history. What are the prospects for God's people in history? As history flows, what are our prospects? According to the Word of God, what are we to expect in the flow of history? Is God's kingdom destined to be a backwater eddy throughout history until the end when Christ comes to retrieve us out of this world and bring it to a conclusion? Or is the kingdom of God to be a growing, overwhelming flood that will wash away all opposition in history? These are the kind of things we're dealing with here. And a corollary issue, which we'll not touch on so directly, but will be by implication, a corollary issue is, what is your role in this? 
in the outworking of history, in the spread of the kingdom of God. What is your role in God's kingdom? Are we to sit back and wait for Jesus to come to straighten everything out? Or are we to engage the world as soldiers of the cross, now, in time, and on earth? I believe Scripture teaches a positive, hope-filled future for God's people. I believe that we can have a hope-filled outlook. Despite current circumstances that we know are not good, we have an eye to the future and Christ's victory in it. Christ will win the victory. He will win it in history. The gospel will gradually spread until it overwhelms the world. And I hope to show that in these four messages in our series here. Now, this view is called the post-millennial view. The one I'll be presenting, that is, Christ comes post, that is, after millennial conditions prevail. Post-millennialism teaches that there will be a gradual progress through incremental progress of his kingdom in history. It will develop over time. Gradualism characterizes the post-millennial hope, which I believe is the biblical hope. Gradualism. Our view is not like premillennialism. Premillennialism believes in catastrophism, that Christ will come and suddenly impose his will on this world through his second coming. That's catastrophic, but we believe in a gradualistic approach. And I'll be defending this notion of gradualism as we get into these messages. You'll see how Scripture itself does speak in terms of the gradual progress. Well, Christians, you have been commissioned to take the gospel into the world. You have been commissioned to take the battle forward into history. The battle against Satan and his minions. Christ promotes His kingdom through your labors as Spirit-filled Christians. We're not doing it apart from Him. We're doing it because of Him, and we're doing it through Him and His Spirit. He will not come until after... This is what I believe and what I'll be trying to demonstrate in this series. He will not come until after a long era of gospel-produced righteousness and worldwide victory. I believe this with all my heart. I believe Christ is the victor. And we're going to see Bible verses that compel us to adopt such a position. Your future hope is for a long period, ultimately, of righteousness, peace, and prosperity in this world. Is this, in this conference, we're going to see that the Bible offers this hope. Not just post-millennial theologians, not just some preacher from South Carolina... But the reason I believe that is because the Bible itself teaches it. The Bible offers us an eschatology of hope in history, in time, and on earth before Christ returns. We should be motivated and encouraged and uplifted and excited for having been here as we see God's Word open to us so that we might see wonderful glimpses of what God has in store for us in the future. And so we are here, hopefully, to recommit ourselves to the work of Jesus Christ in the world that He has created, in the world that He has placed us, in the world that He has come into to conquer. I hope you will listen with the Berean spirit to see if these things are so. You know, there's a story told of a little girl that had a strong commitment to Scripture. She's at school drawing a picture. And her teacher comes by and said, what are you drawing? The little girl says, I'm drawing a picture of Jonah getting swallowed by the well. The teacher says, well, you know that didn't really happen, don't you? The little girl says, no, I know it happened. The teacher said, no, he would have died. There's no way that could happen. The little girl says, well, when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah if he got swallowed by the well. The teacher says, well, what are you going to do if Jonah didn't go to heaven? The little girl says, well, then you ask him. (laughs) Well, so let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin first noting, and in your notes you notice, Roman numeral one, hope and creation. We're going all the way back to creation. For us to consider the end of history, the consummation of history, we as Christians, basing our views on God's Word, must deal with the beginning of history. We deal with creation and consummation because they are related. We must ask, why did God create this world? What is the goal for history? What is God's plan for history? That's what we're interested in. And we're going to go back to the beginning and see 
the seed of this hope-filled victory in the even the creation record. As Christians, we believe in linear history. Christianity and Judaism were quite different from the ancient world. The rest of the ancient world had a cyclical view of history. They believed that uh, cycles came and went and came and went and that you couldn't rise above them. It was a, a groundhog day all the time in their view in terms of the long-term progress of history. But Judaism and Christianity established what's called the linear principle of history. There is a beginning and there is an end and they are connected with history connecting them. And so we, we believe in that because the Word of God teaches it. And God causes both the creation and the consummation. The same God is involved in both and they are related therefore. Well let's notice now at this point God created the world for His glory. Now we're going to be trying to demonstrate that we expect God's glory to come to full prevalence in history through the outworking of the gospel. Well, God created the world for a reason. He created it to bring glory to Himself. In Romans 11:36, it says, From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things belong to God. They're from Him, they're to Him. All things, he says. And in Revelation 4.11, we hear the angels say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. He created all things to bring himself glory and honor. After all, Psalm 24.1 tells us, a very familiar passage of Scripture, I trust, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live therein. This declaration appears over a dozen times in the Scriptures, in both the Old and the New Testaments. This earth is the Lord's, and all of it, in terms of its people, its land masses, whatever, all of it belongs to God. He created it, He owns it, and He providentially governs it. Amen. Now, what was the original uh, foundation, or excuse me, what was the original condition of creation? Of course, we all know it was created glorious. Genesis 1.31, we find that at the end of the six-day creation process, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything was very good. God created a good world to bring glory to Himself in terms of His goodness. So, an important question arises when considering creation. Will God realize his intent of creational glory brought to himself in history. Well, perhaps the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray, but surely God's plan has not gone astray. After all, the New Testament informs us of the final result of creation and redemption. In uh, Colossians 1, 16 through 20, we read, For by him all things are created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile, what? All things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now I'm just realizing something that <clears throat> this is the first conference I've had since I've been I've gone to an ophthalmologist and said he says you have macular degeneration. I thought I wonder what that is. Now I know. I, I can't see good. I can't see my own notes well. So hang in there and I'll stumble through this somehow. Christians, God created this world for himself and for his own glory. We must ask, will he get glory, positive glory? in this world as history works its way out to the end. Now, not only did God create it for His glory, but notice, secondly, God created man in His image. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. What is the image of God? 
How does it relate to historical progress? Does it relate to historical progress? What is the image of God? Well, the text informs us the central significance of the image of God in man. It informs us of the historical purpose and function of the image of God that is in us. For in Genesis 1.26 we read these words, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and... This is a consequence of them being in the image of God. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth. It's very important that we recognize that we are images of God and that image involves our exercising dominion in the earth, exercising rule over the rest of the world, the animals and plants and everything else in it. That's what the image of God entails because it's directly connected to the declaration that we're the image of God. It is directly declared we are to rule, therefore. The image of God naturally reflects God. God exercises dominion. Man on a creaturely level is to exercise dominion in his world. God speaks and directs. Man on a creaturely level is to speak and to direct. God creates. Man on a creaturely level, he also creates. Christians, the image of God involves in us the creational impulse to develop culture. It's a drive to develop culture. Culture building is not an accident of history. Culture building is the point of God creating us in his image. Man is a culture building creature from the beginning. Now consider, while Adam and Eve were alive, Cain and his children began developing advanced culture. Genesis 4, 20-22 says, Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. And for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. Christians, Early man, contrary to the evolutionary worldview that prevails today in secular fallen culture, early man was not a knuckle-dragging caveman. He dwelled in tents, in tents that he made through his craft, through his skill in dealing with the threads and the fibers. He made tents. He didn't just crawl into a hole, a dark hole, and get protection from the sun, wind, and rain in that manner. He raised livestock, exercising dominion over the cattle. He was already dealing with animal husbandry right there in the generations of Adam and Eve. He created music, not random grunts. He was making music of the time. And then he invented musical instruments, the lyre and the pipe. And he worked with metal to make tools. This is not the view of earliest man that is presented to us in the fallen worldview known as evolution. But this is the view given to us by someone who was there, God, as he reveals it to us. And Christians, God expects you to be culture builders. And as we work our way through this principle of the post-millennial hope, we're going to be driven to a realization that we are to develop culture to the glory of God according to the Word of God. You still have the image of God. Unbelievers suppress the image of God, but you must press the image of God because you know the truth and the truth has set you free. But now what do we do? Sin has invaded the world. We see the effects of sin all around us. We know it all too well. What can be done? Is there hope for this lost and fallen world? Or does God just simply dismiss it and wait till the end when he has a new creation and there his will will prevail but not until then? No, we're not to wait till the end. God has not dismissed earthly contemporary history. That brings me to my next point. God established redemption for your hope. In Genesis 3, 1 through 5, we read about man being tempted, Adam and Eve, man and woman, being tempted and falling. 
They break the commandment of God regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That wasn't a magical tree. That was a test tree. God simply said, okay, that tree right there, I'm telling you not to eat it. And the, the day you eat of it, you shall die. The point being, will you let me determine good and evil? Me picking out a tree that looks very good in itself, but I will declare it's off base for you. Will you allow me to do that, Adam? That's the point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the test of God. It wasn't a magic idea at all. Would Adam recognize God's right to determine good and evil, or will he assert that right to himself and declare that he is the one? Is He's to be as God determining good and evil. Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve partook, sin entered the world, man was fallen, and ever since then we've been plagued with sin all around. But, immediately after the fall, God sets redemption in motion. He issues a prophetic judgment against the tempter, that is, against Satan himself. In Genesis 3.15, another famous passage, which I'm sure you recognize, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is known by theologians as the Proto-Evangelium. That is, the first promise of the gospel. The Proto-Gospel, as it were. Right here, immediately after the fall of Adam into sin, God gives the first promise of the gospel. He gives the hope of redemption. And the idea is the seed of the woman, who is Christ, will suffer a painful blow. He will be stricken on the heel, the imagery there. He will suffer a painful blow, to be sure. But the seed of the serpent, he will suffer a deadly blow. He will be bruised in the head. Now let's notice something very important here. In Genesis 3.15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The prophecy, you see, is ordaining historical struggle. Enmity and bruising of one another. You well are aware of this struggle. You're in the very midst of it. The struggle and conflict that we face day by day in history. This is not accidental. This is a part of the curse of God. I will put enmity. There will be struggle. There will be bruising. There will be injury. But now we must ask, what about this? Was creation historical? Well, yes, it was. It established the material world and the flow of history in which we live. Is culture building historical? Well, yes, it was. It works within history. Very early, man was creating tools. He's creating musical instruments and all of this. Was the temptation historical in the Garden of Eden? Well, yes, it was. It was a real garden that Adam and Eve really sinned and fell. Was the fall historical? Yes, it was, in time and on earth. So then, may we expect the defeat of Satan to be historical? Surely, Genesis 1 through 3 is dealing with real history, issuing forth in real consequences. So God created this world in order to bring glory to himself. He created man in his image to exercise dominion in the world. And then he brings into the world, into this fallen world, the concept of redemption. He brings redemption so that man might have a righteous dominion over this world. Of course, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and it's taking some time. And it could well be a long time still coming. But do you believe in redemption through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit? Then you must believe the creational and redemptive purpose of God will be realized in history. You must believe in that. According to the Word of God, the foundation of your hope is set at the very beginning where God says, yes, there will be struggle, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Well, now, let's look at hope and covenant. God structures redemption through covenants. Covenants are important in Scripture. In fact, the word covenant appears over 300 times in the Scriptures mostly in the Old Testament, but it does appear numerous times in the New as well. And it's often in dramatic context. And the idea of a covenant is it is a formal legal arrangement between two parties. 
So the idea of a divine covenant, one that God establishes, is that it is a formal legal arrangement that God imposes upon his creature. It secures his solemn promise. He formally commits himself in covenant. Okay, so what? What does that have to do with the flow of history? God's promise presently is a hope of victory, as we're going to see. Notice the next point. God's covenant and promise. God's covenant and promise. All the Bible covenants are one in principle. They are covenants of the promise. According to Ephesians 2.12, Paul says... The covenants of the promise. The plural covenants of the singular promise. And that is the promise going back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. The key covenant that we know quite well, I'm sure, is the Abrahamic covenant. It's given much space in Scripture, not only in Genesis chapter 1, but all through the Pentateuch and even through the Old Testament and into the New it's mentioned many times. And notice one feature, one important feature of the Abrahamic covenant that God makes with Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. I'll not read the whole covenant statement in Genesis 1 through 3. But verse 3 says, In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Not some families, not a few, but following the pattern of hope that we found in creation and in redemption, we have this notion of victory. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul sees this in Romans 4.13 when he says, Abraham promised uh, that he would, uh, to God, Abraham promised that he would be heir of the world. Not just of one people in the world, of a small sliver of land in the Middle East. Abraham would be the heir of the world, which is what the Abrahamic covenant says. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. But notice also God's covenant and confirmation. Victory is confirmed to Abraham later. Not only has God established that covenant with him where he promised that he would, uh, all families of the earth would be blessed through him. But later we read in Genesis 22:17, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. My promise, God says, is that your seed shall possess the gate of its enemies. Well, what is a gate? In the Old Testament, a gate had a twofold purpose. It was for defense and it was a place of justice. It was a place where the gate could be opened and let friends in, but shut to keep the enemy out. And because of its prominence as a most important part of the defense of the city, it was a place that is mentioned often in the Old Testament as a place where the elders sat to uh, govern in the land. The Abrahamic covenant... According to Genesis 22, verse 17, the Abrahamic covenant will overthrow all opposition and establish righteousness. And Christ really reflects on this in Matthew 16, 18, when he tells Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, this idea of the gate, the protective mechanism of a kingdom. The gates of hell are not going to be able to withstand the onslaught, onslaught of Christ's church. And Christians, you are the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16 teaches. You are the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.29 teaches us. As former Gentile enemies of God, you have been adopted into God's family. You are now of the children of Abraham. You have been overcome by God's gracious covenant so that you can be a part of this movement in the world. So then, God's covenant dealings work out God's creational purpose in history. His covenant dealings match up once again with His creational and redemptive purpose. It seeks the same result, the result we're really focusing on in this series, the result of victory over opposition. 
the proto-evangelium promises that Satan will be crushed, the Abrahamic covenant promises that Abraham's seed will possess the gate of the enemy. Well, this leads me thirdly to hope and prophecy. We could consider many Old Testament prophets, uh, prophecies, but I'm going to focus on one because it, it's a very powerful one. It has so much in these two or three verses that it really says what we need to hear. It is powerful and wide-ranging vision of future glory. And that is Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Let's notice first the believer's hope and its time. It's time. In other words, when is this to happen? This is important for demonstrating your optimistic hope in history. Isaiah 2.2 opens this prophecy by saying, It will come about in the last days. Alright? Before we consider what is going to come about, we've got to focus on what are the last days. What does he mean? The last days is an important phrase structuring prophetic time frames. What does it mean? Many think last days speaks of the time just before Christ returns. That's not what he's talking about at all. Let's notice in the first place the last days in the New Testament. The New Testament is clear. There's really no way around it. I don't see how people have, so many people have missed it. But the last days begin in the first century when Jesus came. And there are many lines of evidence. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, Christians are in Jerusalem. And suddenly they begin speaking in tongues. And then what does Peter say? Then Peter said, Acts 2, 16 and 17, This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days. In other words, this initiates the last days. The prophetic last days. In Hebrews, we find that the writer of Hebrews, who is writing to Christian Jews, which is why it's called Hebrews, talks about changes that are being effected by Christ. And he also opens with this notion of the last days. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Therefore, we must understand... The Bible divides history into two basic parts. B.C., before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord, that is, after Christ. Christ is the dividing point of history. The last days begin when Christ comes in the first century, not in 1948 when Israel has made another nation in this world. Not sometime in the future. Christ is the divider of history. He is the seed promised in the Proto-Evangelium that began in the Garden of Eden. The Old Testament begins looking forward to Him. He shall bruise the head of the serpent. That's looking forward to His coming. And then when He comes, He initiates the last days. As the fulfiller of prophecy, He begins the last days process. Now we'll have more to say on that notion of last days in this message and in some other ones as well. Well, let's look now at the last days in theology. In the Hebrew of Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah uses a definite article, the, before the last days. He is not saying simply, in later days. Rather, he's saying, in the last days. The well-known, particular last days. The last days of prophecy. The last days according to God's Word. Not simply some future time, whenever it may be, but in the well-known last days. That definite article is there in the Hebrew of this text. Now, consider an important implication of the last days. They are the last days. There's no new era after the last days. After the last days, you're not to have a thousand more years, 365,000 more days, as some believe. The last days lead up to the last day. They do not lead up to another thousand years of activity on the earth. There's no room for a separate future millennial period. These are the last days that began in the first century. Now listen closely. Isaiah dogmatically declares... Now it will come about that in the last days, in the last days, the Hebrew word here is beth, 
if you're interested. It means during, in the course of, or within. That is, during the very unfolding of the last days, this prophecy will come to pass. Of course, we haven't looked at what the prophecy says yet. We're setting it up to see when it's going to happen, and then having to establish that. Well, what is it that's going to happen? Thus, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled during, that is, while the last days are ongoing. In the last days. Not later, but in the last days. Well, what is to happen in the last days? Before the last days are over. Before Jesus comes again at the last day to resurrect us. What is to happen? This leads us to my next point. The believer's hope and its establishment. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3 says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the uh, God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that way we may walk in his paths. For in the law, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, what does this mean? Before we can deal with this and understand it properly, we have to realize this is prophecy. If you've got a modern translation of the Bible, you'll see it done in stanza format. It is, it is uh, not prophecy, poetry, I should have said. This is poetry. And poetry involves symbolism. So we're going to have to look at this passage and see what it is that is being symbolized here. What is the Lord's house? What is Mount Zion and Jerusalem going to be in the outworking of this prophecy since this is a symbolic passage. Well, we can find help in the New Testament because it picks up on these very concepts and explains them. And so let's notice hope and its central focus. It's certainly true that the house of the Lord is the temple. In the Old Testament, it was that structure that was well known to Israel. It was well known in the first century until it was destroyed, of course. The temple is the place where God is worshipped. But, what about Isaiah's prophecy regarding the house of the Lord? The New Testament does speak of a temple, but it says that you are the temple. And it says it often. The new covenant temple is the body of believers of which you are a part. It is the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says... So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also were being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6.16 We are the temple of the living God. And you can say that just as Paul's friends back in that day could say it. We are the temple of the living God. This is also said in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Peter 2.5. Do you believe in Christ as Savior? Does His Holy Spirit dwell in you? If so, then you are local manifestations of the temple of God in this world. From the New Testament perspective... Isaiah 2 is prophesying the building of the church of Jesus Christ. Because you, as the church, are a temple of God. You are the house of God, according to the New Testament, that explains such passages as these. But let's see how this is affirmed in another way as we're looking at this passage. Let's, let's notice hope in its specific time. Now remember, time, the time of establishing the house of the Lord is in or during the last days. Of course, we dealt with that a few moments ago. In or during the last days. And we're going to see Isaiah has several interesting parallels with the book, with the epistle of Hebrews. And we're going to see how the epistle of Hebrews helps throw a light back on the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 2 opens with the last days, just like Hebrews does. Isaiah 2.2 2 says, Now it will come about in the last days. 
Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, and in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Both this prophecy and the epistle of Hebrews open what opens with, in the last days. We are now in the last days, as I pointed out a few moments ago. Hebrews 9.26 says, Now once at the consummation of the ages, consummation for the last period, the consummation of the ages, the last days. Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Jesus' death was in the consummation of the ages. It was in the last days, as we've already demonstrated. Therefore, we are now in Isaiah's last days, the current era since the first century. The last days where we're expecting something to happen with this house of the Lord and Mount Zion and Jerusalem and all of this. And we've already looked at the house of the Lord as being the temple, the body of Christ in the world today. Well, Hebrews is a message given to Jewish Christians who are apostatizing back into Judaism. They've been persuaded by the gospel, but they've begun slipping and returning because of pressure from home or because of uh, persecution from without. And so Hebrews is a, given as a warning to the Jews. And that warning is that the old covenant is preparatory, it is temporary, and now it's ready to vanish away. Hebrews 8.13 says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever become, is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He urges the Jewish Christians to recognize the new covenant in Christ and not go back to that literal temple. Go back to that literal city of Jerusalem. Go back to that literal Mount Zion. Well, notice now, hope in its New Testament interpretation. Another relationship between Hebrews and Isaiah is that both speak of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And so in the New Testament, we're learning how the New Testament is interpreting this concept of, of Jerusalem and uh, Mount Zion. Isaiah 2.3, once again, The law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, guess what? Hebrews 12.22 says, In the first century... You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what's being prophesied in Isaiah. This time in the last days, initiated by Christ's first coming and his death on the cross and all that that entails, this time is what the people are in, in Hebrews. Isaiah 2, 2 says that, and Hebrews 12, 22 says that both speak of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have already come. Why go back into Judaism? You have come to what the prophets looked forward to. The first century begins the age of the fulfillment of these prophecies regarding Zion and Jerusalem. And this involves the church age where we live now since the coming of Christ. Well, then also look at the hope and its God-ordained certainty. And this is vitally important to what we're pursuing here in this conference, uh, this idea of hope. Isaiah 2.2 says, In the last days the house of the Lord will be established. Now this statement in Hebrew is actually more powerful than it comes across in English. Because in the Hebrew the word established is moved to the front of the sentence for emphasis. It literally says in Hebrew, established shall be the mountain of the house of the Lord. The verb is moved to the front of the sentence to get the bulk of the emphasis there. Established. And the Hebrew word for established is the Hebrew word kun, spelled K-U-N in, in transliterated form, which means something of permanent duration. Established will be the house of the Lord, which, remember, is the church. But notice how this word kun is used elsewhere. Isaiah 93.1 and 96.10 both say, The world is firmly established. It shall not be moved. In terms of that imagery there, it's firmly established. What are we going to do to go outside and try to move this earth? All of us together couldn't budget, obviously. Well, even more significantly, Isaiah 9.7 says, The Lord abides forever. He has established His throne. 
Now, is God's throne pretty solid? God's throne is established. The same word, established shall be the house of the Lord. Established is the throne of God. Psalm 93, 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This word used here for the establishing of the house of the Lord, which is the temple, which is the church, this word used is a powerful word that talks about sure stability. And this has a parallel also in Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, 28, we read, Therefore, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. This kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ, cannot be moved. Receiving. Notice it's present tense. The writer of Hebrews says, We are in the process now and today of receiving a kingdom not as a passing thing in history, not as a temporary phenomenon, but as something that cannot be moved. This is agreeing, once again, with Isaiah's prophecy. Christ has established an unshakable, unshakable kingdom in the first century, the church of Jesus Christ. And we're in that now. The church still exists in the world, despite all of its buffetings that it's endured. Certainly the Lord's house shall be permanently established. Established shall be the mountain of the house of the Lord. It shall be established, and indeed has been. Then notice also, hope it is God-ordained glory. Isaiah 2.2 notes the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be raised up above the hills. It shall be then the chief of the mountains. See this image of this strongly established church the house of the Lord is going to be exalted, raised up high. The chief of the mountains. Prophetic imagery to be sure. It's not going to be on a, a tall mountain where it would be terribly cold up there. It's just saying that it's going to be raised up for all to see and to be amazed at. As Christ puts it in Matthew 13, 31 through 32, The kingdom of heaven will be like a mustard seed, which, which a woman took and sowed in the field, and it's smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It starts small, gradualistically, remember the gradualistic principle, and grows until it becomes the largest of the trees in the garden. Clearly, Christ expected the dominance of his church, his kingdom of heaven, to grow and become large. In fact, in Matthew 16, 18, once again we read, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are there, the defensive mechanisms of Satan are there, but they're not going to be able to withstand the onslaught of the kingdom of Christ. Now, consider the believer's hope and its results. The believer's hope and its results. How is the mountain of the house of the Lord to be established? What is to be the result of this prophecy, this prophetic hope we're considering? Notice first, the nations of, and the influence of the gospel. Number one, the nations and the influence of the gospel. If it is established, which we've shown that it shall be, then it will be exalted by the spread of the Christian faith. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3 says, Now it will come about that the, in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This speaks of gospel victory. All nations flowing in to Christ's kingdom. This house of the Lord, all nations shall flow into it. Not just a few, not just Jews, not just some, but the whole earth. These evangelize others. As they're flowing in, as these people are being converted and flowing in, they're looking back and saying, Come, let us go and worship God. They're evangelizing others. They're being evangelized and being converted. And as they go, as it were, they're turning to others and saying, Come with us. Let us go and worship God. 
Now this has uh, some parallels with the Great Commission, which we'll deal with, I believe, in our next message. But Isaiah says, all nations will flow. The Great Commission says, disciple all nations. Isaiah says, let's go to the house of the Lord for worship. The Great Commission says, baptize them in the name of the triune God. That's an act of worship. Isaiah says, he will teach us his ways. That is, we'll be educated in the things of God. The Great Commission says, we are to disciple the nations. Isaiah says, walk in the paths Walk in his paths, and the law shall go forth from Zion. That's ethics. The Great Commission says, teach them to observe observe all things I'm teaching you. There's a parallel between Isaiah's prophecy and Christ's Great Commission. In other words, Christ is building on this prophecy. Well, notice now, the nations and the influence of the culture. What is going to be the result of widespread gospel success? Okay, you got all these people being converted... And as they're going into the house of the Lord to worship, they're turning around to others and say, Come, you go with me. Let's go in there together. All this constant source of evangelism working its way out in history. What is to be the ultimate uh, influence of all of this? After all of this, they are building culture. There's a legal and social influence. Isaiah 2 says, For the law will go forth from Zion. The law will go forth from Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Due to the ultimate dominion of the well-established house of the Lord with all of the influence of the nations flowing into it and uh, engaging in uh, gospel and evangelism, this is what's going to happen. Sinners are going to be transformed. They're going to be transformed so much their warring tendencies will subside. They will implement God's law gladly and peace will ensue. What is the consequence of this widespread worldwide evangelism and discipleship? Men and nations are altered by the powerful word of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that power is going to enter into the lives of men and women. And progressively more so as history unfolds. Well, there are many other scripture passages I could have dealt with in the Old Testament. In fact, one of my books up here... It looks like they're already gone. Is he shall have dominion is 600 pages, but I got to admit I wrote it back in the 1980s when I had a lot of stuttering, so there are probably extra pages it didn't need. <clears throat> Christians, you are on the side of victory. Do not give up. Keep up your efforts for Christ and for righteousness. You are established. You will be exalted. Victory is yours through God. Uh, your God blessed labors through the power of the Holy Spirit in the long run. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you for the power of your gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And Lord, we are so short-sighted that oftentimes we look at what's going on round about us now and think it can't be done. But we know that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And in the long haul, victory is yours, and therefore victory is ours. Give us hope, give us courage, give us insights into your word that we might promote the truth in the world. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.